welcome to another episode of Management Muse. I'm your host, Cindy Bali, and this is my husband and co-host, Jeffrey Tumlin. Yellow. Welcome to the podcast where we try to inspire better work performance. Thanks for listening. All right. Special edition of the Old Muse today. Talking about leader development in honor of uh, our mentor, one of our mentors who passed away just a few weeks ago, Howard Prince. He uh, gave me my first job after I got my PhD. We worked together for almost seven years at the University of Texas. And I spent many, many lunches at Jason's Deli many, with, many the, with the two of them. At so Jason's Deli. He wasn't. Yeah. He wasn't formally my mentor, but yeah, he yeah. was informally. Yeah. Yeah, Cindy was getting her PhD. Uh, she got her PhD a couple years after I got mine. And Howard, I was working with Howard at the time. And so Cindy would come along because she was at UT as well at the time. And, and I love Howard. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Most people do. I'll start with a story. Our topic's going to be leader development. Uh, and it'll be some of the lessons about how we actually take people and help them get better from time A to time B. That's the essence of leader development. And we'll talk a little bit about lessons from Howard Prince and his life and uh, things that we can take away as we all in our own way try to help the people who we work with get better. Maybe you help the people we work with, help the people in our life, you know, kids, spouses uh, and other people who we love and want to see grow and develop and stretch themselves day by day. So part of the deal for me taking the job because I ended up jumping disciplines over into public affairs was Howard told me that he would tutor me and teach me everything I needed to know, fill all the holes in my knowledge about leadership development uh, and then also psychology, because he was a clinical psychologist by training, who then went into leader development. And so I would go and I would fill these moleskin notebooks, uh, <laughs> usually after he'd had his lunch at Jason's Deli, when we'd sit for another 20 to 30 minutes, and he'd give me tutoring. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, you pr- took in some of those sessions where he would just talk about whatever a certain topic that was gripping his mind at the moment and we would take notes and it's kind of great learning. I mean, you were at a bunch of those sessions. I was, yeah. I was. And so one day, uncharacteristically, he puts his sandwich down and he's like, do you know the tragedy of psychology, Jeff? And I'm like, oh, hold on, boss. You know, this this seems big. You know, for some reason, we're breaking protocol. Normally, the tutoring doesn't come until after, after the eating. After That's the right. ice cream, actually. After the ice cream. Yeah, it's funny. He grew up in the Depression, so... They had a free ice cream machine at Jason's Deli, and he couldn't help a little bit, but he was watching his sugar. And so whenever I would get so, up to get ice cream. Yeah, he'd make the mistake of asking Jeff to ah. get his ice cream. And so Howard, every single time, Howard would be like, just a little bit, just a small. Yeah. And Jeff would come back with the biggest container heaping with ice cream, and yep. Howard would be like, oh, I can't do yep. this. Because I'm a maximizer, and it's free. And Howard just wanted a little bit, but he's remembered the depression. So he would always eat it, eat it all. all. Clean that plate. Yeah. Yep. And so 
So we he was breaking protocol. He's gonna you know tell me what the tragedy of psychology was, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know this is, must be a big deal. So I get my notebook, get my pencil. I'm like, all right, boss, lay it on me. This is a tragedy of psychology is that people don't learn from their experiences because they don't learn from because they don't learn from their experiences. And then he looks at me and goes down and picks up his sandwich, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, you know. Boss, you laid some wacky old Mr. Miyagi wax on, wax off, because I have, I have no idea what you just said, but it sounds important. It's very zen Yeah, pretty zen, but you know, I, I have no idea what that meant. So he set his sandwich back down. He's like, listen, Jeff, people say they want to change, and all day long they accumulate lives of experience and doing. Do, 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 all day long. They're doing stuff. But they never stop and actually ask basic questions. Is what I'm doing actually working? And is what I'm doing moving me in the direction I want for my life? And he said, that's the tragedy of psychology. Is that people want to change, but they don't reflect enough on the limitations between what they're doing and what they want in order to know how to change. And so they have lives of activity and experience, but without reflection, they don't convert that into wisdom. And without wisdom, you're the same person every day. And I never forgot that, that without reflection, you can't convert experience into wisdom. And without wisdom, you're going to be the same person day in and day out, year in, year out. Yeah, I would say that Howard is unique, not only because he was ahead of his time with like the study of leadership, mm. but that, you know, a person like he, like what you just said, Howard did. He always challenged things. Sure. He always fought for what he thought was ethically right. Yeah. And he continued to develop really all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, he had a blessing and a curse, as Cindy says, of he was probably 20 years ahead of his time. Yeah. And so he studied leadership when it wasn't cool in the, you know, 70s. And when you study something that isn't cool, you get penalized. So back to Howard and this first myth that he blew up is that you could kind of develop people by hazing them or berating them or yelling or all this kind of kind of old school business, right? So he goes through the military academy, graduates in 1962, uh, ends up getting a Olmsted uh, scholarship to study in Germany. And so by the time the dust settles, he goes to Vietnam and I forget what years, but I think it's like 68, 69, 70. It was some of the worst. Yeah, it was some of the worst years to be in Vietnam as a company commander. And basically, he arrives in Vietnam and he issues, pretty early in his company command, he issues an order for his troops to move from this one hill to this other hill. And a couple hours later, one of his platoon leaders comes back and says, basically, sir, the men aren't going to go. And Howard's immediate reaction to himself was he was angry. Like, what do you mean they're not going to go? I'm the commander, and they're not. Why aren't they going to go from this hill to this hill? And, but he kind of choked that back, his, his anger and frustration, and said, okay, well, let me go talk to him. 
and he went and talked to them, and you realized that they were basically scared. And they felt they didn't understand why are we leaving this hill and going to this hill. I thought there was enemy all in between and we're going to get mowed down. And so he said he actually kind of had he actually sat there and in the dirt kind of drew it out. Okay, we're here and we're going over to here and this is the kind of support we're going to get. And this is why uh, we're not going to get mowed down. Most likely we're going to be fine. And, And he explained it all. And at the end of it, the guys were like, okay, sir. All right, that makes sense. Okay, we'll be ready. And Howard's epiphany was, like, I don't have, I was not trained in the tools I need to lead these men. Like, I was trained in a system where, and I, I'm simplifying, but where the system I was trained in you develop people by basically a lot of berating and pointing out what's wrong and well, finger wagging. I, I think too, like, and obviously I don't have any direct knowledge of being in the military, but I think too, like some some of that philosophy where like you just yell and tell somebody what to do is, I think they thought it was to break the terror and to just get them moving, like right. Right, like you don't really want them thinking because when they're thinking, it becomes even more terrifying, and so you're just continually moving them along, sort of forcefully. Now that doesn't work because when people are afraid for their life, they're going to do things like find ways to well, protect it. But yeah, and fundamentally, we want we the big collective citizenry we we want a thinking army. And so we, we, we will want our soldiers to think, especially now when a lot of the type of warfare is... I think that's new. Well, uh, it's new, but again, you're back to this idea of we're talking about somebody who was possibly 20 years ahead of his time, right? For sure, yeah. But I think, though, that like that idea that we actually want them thinking kind of makes me think of our recent conflicts where like we want people on the ground trying to build relationships like they're not just doing what we're saying they they have to actually put some thought right. into the interactions that they're having around them and, and that seems and Howard might have been on to that back then but in terms of like just as a you know observer from the outside of the military that seems like a fairly new thing. I think before it was going on this idea that, you know, the soldiers below, they get the orders they do. And that's not entirely wrong. I would just point out from my perspective, you know, you, you've got to think of different levels in the military, right? And so I, it's not only the officers we want thinking, it's also all of the enlisted leaders, called, t- often called non-commissioned officers, which in many histories of the Army are what make the American Army distinct, is mm-hmm. this core of people who we might call middle managers, right? They're not the C-suite, but they're running they're the really day-to-day, yeah. and they're actually 
fairly thoughtful when they're at their best, creative and thoughtful and so forth. And then, yes, a lot of times the troops follow orders, but even there in, as you pointed out, more recent history, there's a lot of benefit to soldiers, especially as the Army went increasingly to being a volunteer force, then you've got people who want to be in the army and you've got people mm-hmm. who uh, in at certain times we've been able to we the army we've been able to select for uh, you know higher test scores and so forth and so I, I don't think that you're wrong in general I feel like as you also pointed out that's that's changing and you know you think about i mean i when we get too far afield here but when you think about the future of armed conflict you know we may be arriving quickly to a point where your average private has to think if a lot of the technological Advances that we're seeing not only in civilian life but also in warfare continue to keep pace. I mean, you've you're you're going to have to we're going to have to put the authority yeah, and the trust in them more. more yeah, so. some. Yeah, yeah, more so. Yeah. Hello, musers. Now it's time for commercial break. Today, I'm going to tell you a little something about our strategic planning products. Did you know most companies don't have a strategy and most strategic plans aren't strategic? And that just doesn't sound right to us. We'll help you convene your core leadership team and shape a strategy and a strategic plan that's just right for your organization. We offer six, nine, and 12 session packages led by facilitators with doctorates in management or related fields who also have decades of experience in business. We'll help you leverage your core competencies and your unique insights into a competitive advantage. Contact us at ondemandleadership.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Back to Howard. Back to his first myths that he kind of blew up. So he, there he is in Vietnam, realizing that the system that he'd been through had a lot of finger-wagging and yelling in it, but that was exactly what wasn't going to work in the experiences he was finding himself in Vietnam. He was going to have to listen to him. He's going to have to explain things sometimes over and over. And so, and, and then fast forward a couple months, he gets grievously wounded. He ends up living, but has a convalescence that's over a year. So he has a lot of time sitting in a hospital bed to think about how is it possible that I went to this amazing school renowned for leadership, but then it didn't equip me with the tools I needed to be a good, I mean, like infantry officer. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And to give you an idea of just how grievously harmed he was, it was, he was what, 70, 70 when they did the surgery with the knee. Yeah. Well, yeah. He was like in his seventies. Yeah. So long time after Vietnam. 75, maybe 75 years old. Yeah. Maybe. So this guy goes in, he thinks he's got a bum knee. Because his knee hurts, and they can't give him MRIs because he has. They know that yeah, he yeah, has yeah. shrapnel in him. Yeah. And um, so going to the airport with him is always interesting. 
and so he goes in thinking that he's got a bum knee, and they pull out a bullet. He never even knew he'd been shot. Yeah. So he knew he had shrapnel in from something exploding, but he didn't know he'd been shot. And so yeah, AK forty seven round. Yeah, a, a piece of it, a fragment. Right. Yeah, not a whole thing. But, so I like. Yeah. He no. was so hurt that they everybody missed it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that it was. You know, they leave a lot of the shrapnel in there rather than risk taking it out because it might nick up some organs on the way out. In part, it was that epiphany he had that there has to be a better way. And then he had a year. To sit there and think about it. And then he had four years. The Army, after he recovered, sent him to UT to get a psychology PhD. And so, basically, he had one year in the bed and then four years at UT to think through, well, what's the better way? And how is it that we, how should we help people improve? And so this then was happening. So his first kind of myth was that this finger waving and highly negative yelling, hazing, whatever you want to call it, that that actually develops people and it doesn't it's i mean you know now in you know many years later we can look back on that and say well how crazy that seems like the dark ages because all that happens when you know somebody's yelling at you the only thing you want is to make it end and you'll do anything to make it end but you're not learning you're just trying to extinguish whatever that threat is. Right. You might get compliance, but you're not really going to get much beyond that. Right. And you're getting compliance because of the, of the stick that you're bringing. And you're not necessarily getting any learning. Any learning that happens will be kind of haphazard. And so that was the first myth that he exploded. And it happened to be a perfect timing because the Army, after Vietnam, by the time he got his Ph.D., was going to be a more... Uh, volunteer-based, away from the draft to volunteers. And so you can't just draft more when you attrit whatever. You're attriting 20% because they're not making it through this hazing-type system. And so what happens is when they're all volunteers, you don't want to attrit hardly any because everybody you're losing is somebody who wanted to be there, who passed all of the assessments to be there, and basically should be qualified to be in the Army. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different calculus for the percent that you lose. Yeah, you're going to lose some, but you're trying to minimize that. And so he was instrumental, along with a number of other people, uh, in helping the Army make that transition away from let's just bring in as many as we need and we'll bring in 120% because 20% are going to wash out. Well, let's bring in 100%. And then let's try to keep 95 or whatever, 90%. You know, let's make these numbers uh, that are getting attrited out of this yep. much more mm. reasonable by actually helping them be good privates, helping sergeants be good sergeants, helping lieutenants be good lieutenants, captains be good captains, and so forth. And doing that systematically and intentionally. They were going to bring women into West Point. And they were going to have them stay and live off post and bust them in. And I'm, 
I'm probably there's probably other people involved in this, but in my version of the story, it was basically Prince pounding on the table like, "No, we're not going to do this. We're not bussing in the women. They're going to live in the barracks. They're going to live right next to the men. We're going to run this thing like it's actually we're fully welcoming them." And uh, you know, it then so. Of course, he turned out to be right, and uh, years later, it was another thing that I don't think, this, this is a good story, I don't think he told anybody these things. I just got lucky. I caught a lot of these stories because it was just the two of us at UT. And sometimes me. And you, yep. But he didn't have anybody else to talk to, right? I mean, you know, there were all kinds of people to talk to, but I was the guy in the office next to him every day, right? And so... Fast forward the clock then, many years later, and so women, so it's probably 19, it's probably 2000 and, I don't know, call it... Five or something like that. 2005, 2006. So women, this may be the 25th anniversary of women at West Point, the 20th or 25th, and so they have a little conference, right? And so it's a gathering of women. But they invited, I think, I don't know, two men. One was the chaplain from way back then, and the other was Howard Prince. And his flight got delayed. And so by the time he got from Texas to West Point, they had already started the conference. And he, there's maybe 50, 70 people in the room. There's a panel going, and it's all women. Plus the chaplain. <laughs> <laughs> and the back of the auditorium opens, and Howard walks in late because of his flight, and the women stop up at the panel, and one of them says, It's Howard Prince. It's Howard Prince. And they all turn back and look at him and stand up and give him an ovation because. You know, he was, uh, to paraphrase his, he ended up getting the Distinguished Graduate Award from West Point in the citation. They said, basically, he was a progressive voice for women and all cadets at a time when it was desperately needed. And, uh, you know, just... It was that uh, is an example of kind of the second myth, right, of this idea of the right stuff. Of if you go back and you think about, well, leaders have the right stuff, well, then you're excluding short people. Or, like, what you're saying is if they have these certain characteristics, male, tall, sure. you know, well-built, intelligence. Uh, yeah. I mean, hopefully hope for intelligence, but yeah. Yeah. But, it's the old great man theory or right. Theory. That leaders are born sure. and yeah. it turns out, well, no, right. Leaders they can all come shapes in. and say, sizes. And, you know, he, that was it. There are many scholars who've spent, years debunking that and oh, so for sure. so it's well established that uh 
it, that virtually no trait, the, the traits that I know of that do tend to. There's really three. Yeah, it's, it's intelligence, intelligence uh, interpersonal communication, yeah. and emotional intelligence. Right. Yeah. And the interpersonal and the emotional intelligence, to some degree, can be taught. And raw intelligence, yeah, um, yeah. You you know you're born with a certain capacity. Yeah. Some some people develop it right more so than others. Yeah, yeah, and that can be true. Uh, and it's the latest to the latest of my understanding of you know meta analyses and so forth that those. Those three things do tend to help people across a lot of situations be effective as leaders. Uh, like you said, IQ, EQ, and then kind of interpersonal. Communication. Yeah, gifts, kind of interpersonal, you know, people skills. Let's call them just IQ, uh, people skills, and then emotional skills. It's just to distinguish the IQ, or sorry, the EQ from the interpersonal a little bit. That is those are a little bit different, I think. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you could be smart and have no social skills. Right. I'm talking about EQ. EQ and interpersonal. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that basically there's a, the interpersonal is fairly heavily communicative, and then the EQ has a fairly heavily emotional, emotional regulation right. of both self and other. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, another thing, back to this, myth that he helped explode about the right stuff so he's you know he's basically saying no these women are going to be great it's going to be great for west point they're going to be they're going to make great leaders and you know stop thinking about you know we need all these square jawed six foot men at west point that's not that's not what we need and that openness and being a champion of all kinds of people not only at west point but i mean i can remember you know, when he was in his 70s, when we were together at the University of Texas, and he had secured a big grant from a foundation uh, in Dallas, the Hatton Sumner's Foundation, where basically the grant was big enough to give like a $1,500 scholarship to each student to come to a leadership conference. And so students came out of the woodwork wanting to come to this thing. And so he, we only had so many slots, there's only so much money. I forget the number, maybe it's 150 slots we had something like that something like that i remember yeah the size that's about right yeah and so i mean it's easy to fill it up with just the uh, blue chip schools right you know ut uh service academies a&m purdue purdue came you know because we were tight with uh stacy connaughton mm-hmm. purdue and so she came and brought a crew and it it would easy to fill them up with just these kind of high-end schools but he was adamant about no we need all kinds of schools and so he went he actually drove across austin to the historically black school houston tillotson and explained the scholarship and kept up kept up a relationship until they they came yeah until they realized okay this will be great the students will love it and uh, then I just remember, I don't even remember the names. Some of these schools, he would tell me the names. He's like, yeah, we're giving four slots to whatever. And I'm like, is that a school? And he's like, yeah, of course it's a school. And he, I'm like, well, where is it? And he would tell me, and I would never have heard of the city. Like some of these things are in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Well, like, Texas is pretty big, so. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, 
are you sure you want to give four slides? He's like, yes, of course, we want to give four slides. Don't you, you know, he would, he would tell me, you know, because obviously I was a true believer. He would say, don't you think they have leaders out there too, Jeff? And don't you think that they could benefit from being around other people and learning some stuff? And I'm like, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm just saying. He's like, do we really need another four slots from UT or A&M or wherever? No, no, all right, all right. And, uh, and you know, he, to his credit, would was willing to give basically anybody a shot. Um, that was, uh, you know, look, that was notable to me in 2005. And can you imagine Hmm. how noteworthy that was in 1977? And so, so that's two, right? Two of the myths that he blew up. The first was that you could just wag your finger and yell at people and that would help them be leaders. And that that He's like, look, basically, that's a terrible way to develop people. We can do better, smarter, more intentional. The second was that there's certain type of people that they're meant to be leaders and that everybody else is followers. And that, uh, through the way he lived his life and the kind of expansiveness, uh, he helped to demonstrate, and a lot of his protégés are, you know, all... All ages, all races, all, uh, you know, men, women, the whole nine yards. And so that was the second myth that he blew up. And then the third myth was that all you need is on-the-job training to be a leader and that you'll figure it out. And a lot of organizations try that. Yeah. I mean, why? You're right. I mean, I mean just, they're busy. So basically you get, you do yeah. a really good job in your current position yeah. You get promoted up to the next one, and all the learning that happens happens in real time yeah. in the position. Right. Yeah. And, and then you, if you add on top of that the common pitfall of taking a top pr- producer or performer, the person with the greatest uh, technical proficiency, and saying, well, we'll make that person the leader. Which requires a social Right. Efficiency. Yes, and it pulls out of your organization yeah. the very top performer in right. the whatever. Right. So, I mean, there's all kinds of obvious pitfalls. But again, you know, even today, 2021, organizations are notorious for providing the minimum of leadership training to people who are stepping into managerial roles. And Howard's uh, life story worked out to where he became in a position to help pioneer some programs. And so now let's go back to let's go back to the seventies, right? And I guess it was the early eighties when women came in. I think they came to West Point in eighty two. But he also during that time when he was advising Walt Olmer one of the things, the chatter that he had picked up on as the psychologist at West Point was basically the system, the academic system had become so hard or unmanageable Mm. that some people were resorting to cheating just to keep their heads above water and that this was widely understood but not commented on. Meaning the cadets knew but most of the officers were oblivious to it. And so he picked up on this chatter 
And he's like, look, we need to do something. We need to make adjustments to the curriculum because we've created this perverse incentive where it's so hard that people, that smart, qualified people fail, and then we kick them out. And so they think, well, I might as well cheat because most likely I'm not going to get caught, and then I won't fail and get kicked out. And I want to stay. And so we've created this weird incentive where a certain percentage of people... It's uh, basically a toxic system that is yeah. forcing people into you know, doing something unethical in order to survive it. Hello, management users. Today, I want to tell you about my favorite product, the Comprehensive Organizational Benchmark Report and Analysis. That's right, we call it COBRA. And if you want that bad boy to strike at the debilitating uncertainty that fuzzy estimates and half-baked guesses do to your company, and better understand the social and cultural dimensions of your organization, then give us a call or email us at culsure.com. That's culsure.com. So much of the time we see leaders and organizations who are getting upset with employees, but then they fire that employee and they hire somebody else new and then there's still that problem. And it's just like, and then they fire that person and they hire somebody new and there's still that problem. And it's a failure to think about how the system is causing the behavior. And Howard, to his credit, was like, it's not the rotten apple rotting the barrel. It's the barrel rotting the apples. Right. He arrived in an environment where he didn't have any reason not to just tell the truth. He'd already done his war service. He has a PhD. He figured he'll stay in the Army as long as he could, but if they got upset with him, they kicked him out, he would just move to Texas and become a psychologist, you know, continue work as a psychologist, and he was going to be okay with that. And so he gets back to West Point. It's the post-Vietnam-era West Point. And they're debating whether to accept women. And he's standing on the table telling them, of course, this will be great. It'll be what we need, diversity, blah, blah. You know, a message, you know, arguably you could say, again, you know, he was ahead of his time on that. Uh, And and fortunately, he was an influential voice when the transition actually happened, which I believe was 1982. Subsequently, at the same time, running in parallel, there's a lot of... uh, there's this distorted system where it weirdly made sense for some people to cheat and take the gamble as opposed to not cheat, fail, and get kicked out. And so this is happening, and Howard's saying, this is happening. We need to do something. This isn't right. You know, it's not right what they're doing, but it's also not right how our system is encouraging this behavior in some people. And everybody's like, oh, no, that's, you know, it's bad apples. And if we find anybody who's cheating, we're just going to kick them out. And people don't cheat here and all this business. And then, boom, cheating scandal. Mm-hmm. And it's huge. And unfortunately, West Point's first reaction was bad apples. And then Congress said, no, you know, like you said, it's not bad apples, it's a rotten barrel because it's whatever the numbers are. It's close to 100 people, I think. And so it, it, it's not. It's not them, There's it's you. There's something going on with the right. system. Not them, it's you. And so they replace all the generals, and they bring in uh, Andrew Goodpaster, who was Dwight Eisenhower's aide, and then Andrew Goodpaster had gone on to become the supreme 
I believe it's Supreme Allied Commander Europe. Anyway, they bring in Andrew Goodpaster, and uh, there's a lot of changes that West Point makes, and they West Point acknowledges in large part that they were uh, responsible in part for some of this, for creating the conditions. And so they allowed, I forget the number, but they allowed a lot of the people back in. They sent them home for a year, but then they allowed them back in. But this nutty psychologist who'd been warning about this all of a sudden has a bigger voice at the table. And good pastor asks him, what should we do to try to make sure that this never happens again? And Howard says, well, what we should be doing is more systematically teaching leader development. And this is kind of the third myth of that they'll just figure it out in combat. They'll just figure it out on the job. Well, no, instead we should be starting slow, little pieces, and then building up. So it's sequential, it's developmental, it's intentional over time. So that by the time people graduate, they've actually have a toolkit that they've been practicing. And they won't be starting fresh as an entry-level worker in the Army, as a, in this case as a lieutenant. And good pastor's like, okay, great. Well, how do you do that? And he's like, well, we, what we do is we create a department. And this department is a developmental and it's academic. And so it has equal standing. And basically good pastor says, okay, do it. You're the guy. And they, Prince gets, I think, like double promoted, basically from major to colonel, like boom, boom. He went to colonel. It, a few other things happen, but basically he becomes the founding dean of the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point. Which does a ton of research even today. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the basically the psychology department or the management department. They wouldn't call it that. I mean, they call it what they call it, behavioral science and leadership. Because when he created it, that's what it was. It was behavioral science and leadership, and we're trying to use science to develop people. Into and, leaders. Yes, into help them be better from time A to time B. And that was not only novel at West Point, but that was novel almost anywhere. When I think of uh, this topic of leader development and when I think about you know, what we're talking about, Honor and Howard Prince, I think about the three myths that he exploded. The first is that you know, yelling and wagging your finger at people, that that's actually a model of developing people. And he's his... Life work is a testament to the fact that, no, there's a much better way than doing that. The second is that certain people have the right stuff, to which his response was, that's crazy. Let's bring in everybody with the willingness, and then let's train them up and teach them up, and let's see where they go. Let's see what potential is there. Not everybody's going to be the same. Some people are going to perform better than others. There's one path, or maybe a couple paths, where we have better information and they seem more certain, and so we go down them. And I sort of dragged you over into the entrepreneurial lane sure. with me. Um, but what strikes me about Howard, you know, is he really blazed his own path. Like, like not only did he face some of the worst moments in the Vietnam War 
and having to lead people and have that responsibility on him and come out of being sick. But just the way that he developed this, his own path and kind of institutionalizing, you know, processes to actually develop leaders. And, you know, in that process of blazing his own path, he was most certainly a leader in his own right. And that's what stands out to me the most about Howard, you know, that is so striking and how he's different than so many other people. Um, but also, like, I think about his eulogy. And what was... What Jack was, Beach. Jack yeah, Beach. I would say that that... That Jack Beach probably his best friend. Yeah, yeah. It, I definitely think they were best friends. They yeah. always uh, Prince always talked about him, and yeah. but you know he said that, and I love this analogy. He said that Howard was the flame that lit other people's candles. Yeah, and I think that's perfect. Yeah. I think that's exactly what Howard was. Yeah, 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 yeah. He'll be deeply missed. He's got two sons. They're both ministers. Susan, his wife, uh, she's great, wonderful person. All right, let me give you a summary, and I'll tell you one last print story on the way out the door. Uh, our topic today, leader development, in honor of Howard Prince, who's uh, passed away recently. Myths that he exploded, basically the, he proved through his life and his work there's a better way than wagging your finger and yelling at people to develop them, which was a sea change in the 70s and 80s when he was first implementing that. was one of the many people who kind of blew up this great man trait theory of leadership and helped us realize that uh, there's leadership capacity in people of all shapes and sizes, ages, races, creeds, colors. He was, you know, in a way... He was probably the only woke person in the 70s, right? He might have been the only woke person in the 2000s. I don't know. Woke before woke was the thing, right? Yeah. And then uh, the kind of third thing is instead of leaving leadership or management effectiveness to chance, he was a proponent of teaching it, training it, along the way to help people kind of realize more of their potential. And so here's your last Prince story. It's the guy, he definitely lived his values. Even when he told me, you know, it's ethics. If it hurts, (laughs) that's how, you know, it's truly ethics. And so we, uh, at this hat and summer leadership conference that we had put on a number of years at UT, one year, one of the speakers that we brought in was the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Richard Myers. He's a real nice guy, an Air Force general. And uh, we brought him in, and this was after, you know, uh, the Iraq invasion and then the post-invasion. Things weren't going so well, right? There was the insurgency. And so a lot of public opinion was running against the Iraq war. And this was right at the time when we brought then civilian, but formerly chairman of the chief of staff, Richard Myers, who was the chairman of the chief of staff during the uh, Iraq invasion, the second, or I should say the, you know, Gulf war two. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, we brought him in to speak to the leadership conference 
and a faction of students in the LBJ school who weren't a part of the leadership conference, but were LBJ students, organized a protest. And so we like we are bringing this guy in as a guest to UT, and they're organizing a protest against it. And so the speech goes off, and there's a pro. I mean, there's a protest. There's a whole row of protesters in the back, and uh, you know it was important to Howard that basically look, let's run this thing, let's let the general speak, but other voices should be heard, right? And they want to protest, you know he's still going to speak. We're still going to run the conference, but you know, it's America. We, you know, we can have dissent. And so the speech goes off. The protesters are in the back. They're holding up signs, uh, but they don't, they don't, they're not disruptive. Yeah. It's not a killer, right? It's just, it's just an eyesore. And then there is a louder protest outside. So it was moderately disruptive we had to pay for extra security and so you know there were some cost and some logistics and you know blah blah but things kind of mostly went off and then a couple days later there's a big lbj school gathering and we're i'm all that you know all the staff is there howard's there a bunch of the students are there and a student comes up to me and starts talking and he's basically in the conversation, I realize he's afraid that Howard's going to hate him. And he's about to leave. They're about to graduate. And he really loves, so he's conflicted. He really loves Howard, but he's part of this protest. In fact, he's one of the organizers. Now he thinks Howard's going to hate him. And he's talking to me, and I'm like, Howard doesn't hate you. You go talk to him. He's right there. And the guy's like, I can't. He's going to, I'm like, come here. And we, I walk him over and I'm like, Howard, and I say this guy's name, this guy wants to talk to you. And Howard's like, hey, what's going on? And I walk away and they, they talk for probably, I don't know, a minute or two. And the student says to Howard, I don't want you to hate me. And Howard says, why would I ever hate you? guys because I organized this protest at your conference and Howard says but how do you know that that wasn't the most important thing that my students saw maybe you were one of the best parts of our whole conference and the guy's like do you believe that and Howard puts his hands on him and says I believe in you and isn't that enough and the two they hug each other And I remember sitting there and just thinking, you know, how often do you find somebody who is that committed to developing other people that they're always willing to look past their own immediate needs and put the needs of other people in front, you know, with Howard's funeral, it was filled with the flames that he lit, the people whose lives that he touched. Truly, truly a great man. Last of the Mohicans. We love you, Howard. That's we miss for sure. you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the muse. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time.
We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to learn more about the topic, check out our show notes. And if you want to help us out, like, share, subscribe, and five stars are all deeply appreciated. See you next time on The Management Muse. 